absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. My name is Arthur Gaskin, with me as ever is Christopher Sackley and Stuart Crawford. Fellas, what a weekend. How are we getting on? Great weekend. Some, some good squash, as you would say. <laughs> All good here. Did a good five hours of uh, coaching yesterday, but fun. Fun to run around. It is. It's a wonderful game. It's a lovely little bit of space to be running around in. <laughs> Passing on your knowledge to the next generation. Yeah, had some good keeners yesterday, so they were soaking it all up. It's good. I uh, love it. Right. While you were on court for five hours, I was sat in a car for six hours returning a hire car in Rome to then pick up a brand new one and bring it right back three hours each way. That sounds... Just playing the system. Yeah, I think if you're anywhere else in the world, I'd be a little bit sympathetic, but you're in Italy and you drove to Rome, so on your bike. Yeah. You know your holiday is lasting too long when you've exceeded the maximum rental agreement period. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll no longer allow you to renew you without taking the car back. Uh, yeah, absolutely zero sympathy for that. Six Did you at least time. get a new make and model? Something that spices up your life? I got the exact same car in a different color. <laughs> That'll do. Right. <laughs> But I did get to run somewhere different for the first time in three months. I've been running around in basically the same little eight-mile loop almost every day for the last three months. And I basically decided to stop at the coast and go for a run along the coast. Oh, yeah. All right. Look at you on the coast going for a run. That was my highlight. My highlight was, it's a bit of a spoiler, I suppose, was yesterday afternoon sitting down with, with yourself, Stuart, and unfortunately, Chris, you were... You know, teaching the next gen squash, but was uh, catching up with Mohammed El Shabagi and listening to some of what he had to say. Unbelievable. Yeah, as you do on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a tough miss for me. You were I missed. About, I got about four minutes in, and, and my lesson walked in, and I had to slinky off. My shoulders hung low. <laughs> but I'm glad, glad, glad he came on. First yeah. recording you've missed, and you, yeah, of all the ones to miss, yeah, I know. Only the top player of the last decade. He's a very wise man, isn't he? Like he talks like somebody. I mean, I know you expect that, anyways. But, geez, he was brilliant, and some of the insights he had into his mindset and the challenges that he faced, and how he dealt with them, and how he's continuing to deal with them, amazing. Yeah, he's clearly a deep thinker. I mean, obviously about squash, but. A bit more than just that, I think. Yeah. We we talked about it a little after, you know, talking to Jonathan and Peter and um just how it is it is funny how there's a there is a correlation between being the best athlete and I don't know if it translates over every sport. Like there are a lot of great athletes that are, you know, wonderful uh interviewers and, and whatnot, or interviewees I should say. But uh it is funny. I mean, you just, you, you have to get used to the limelight. You have to get used to sharing what's on your mind because that's all people want to know, right? Um, they want to know your perspective and uh, I wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't have doubted. We've, we've heard him talk and he's, he's great and open. So this is going to be the first episode I'm, I'm genuinely, uh, you know, going in with as a, as a regular fan. I'm excited to uh, critique you guys. 
<laughs> Look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Likewise. I actually, I, I don't know about you, Stu. I was super inspired after it. And when I got home, the little setup in the, in the garage, I was doing some like little footwork, some ladder drills, some jumps. Oh. Lifting a few. Oh, I was buzzing, man. Buzzing. <laughs> well, fast feats. Because of the time dis- difference, the first thing I went and did, I'd had dinner before we recorded. And then we got off and I hadn't had dessert, so I went and got an ice cream. So that's how inspired <laughs> I was. <laughs> uh, and there was an article in The Atlantic over the weekend. I'm sure most people in the squash world have seen it. What were your thoughts on it, apart from it being extremely long? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it covers a lot of ground that's been written about before in the past, about sort of privileged Ivy school, uh, Ivy League school experience, but... Um. Yeah, I I don't really have that much to say about it. I think a lot of it's accurate, but some of it's a little bit exaggerated and sort of cherry picked in terms of examples. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chris, I don't know if you've got anything to add. Yeah, it it always sucks because it's just like it's not good publicity, and it it paints a very particular light on the sport which uh i think just gets eyeballs on the story and clicks but squash is changing uh you know slowly but it is i think it is changing and i think u.s squash is doing a good job to try and try and make it make the environment as as kind of healthy as possible but you're going to have parents that have too much money and they're going to throw money at, at something to try and get an outcome. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think they're going to continue to recycle these type of stories for every year as they have been in, in these different, different publications. And I think, you know, it, it clearly gets clicks cause they keep getting recycled, but, uh, yeah, I agree. I'm not, I, I think we all are aware of, of these things going on. Um, I, I like that they had a couple college coaches. Um, the one UVA lacrosse coach who's mentioned in the article used to be the head lacrosse coach at Brown when I was there and he's very successful and, and, um, you know, so it's, I guess good that they got a few, a few insights in there, but, um, yeah, I mean, $400 for a 45 minute lesson i haven't heard that Bargain. rate before but I, yeah <laughs> i haven't heard that rate before like i don't know exactly where they're getting all these these numbers but you know there are people charging not far off that so there are some exaggerations and stuff and uh you know but i don't think anyone's going to be fact checking this article i think yeah it's like it, like Stu said it's it's cherry picked it focuses the article focuses on a very small minority but it also skips the fact that they're learning a, a sport for life that they can play anywhere in the world and they can take with them and they can meet all sorts of people. We all know what the social scene to squash is beyond college life. And when you get into professional life, I think on top of that as well, it, it never really once mentions how important and how amazing the experience is that when you are a college squash player, it's a totally different scene. And the pathway to that has its darkness but when you've got so many people looking for the same thing and so few spots available to them, you know, people, if they, like you say, if they have that kind of money and they see it as a good investment and maybe they can be criticized for the way they go about trying to achieve their goals for the kids. But I think the one thing is, is certainly 
important to acknowledge that a they want what's best for the kids even if they do go about it in a slightly crazy way um but be, like squash is a great game and it does so much good for so many people they learn so many life skills they make so many friends they see so many places i just think it's yeah and the whole college experience of and you guys know it firsthand i've i dabbled a little bit once with uh, the brown squash team for a season and seeing the bonds and the friendships that those kids make young people make like they lives with them forever traveling length and breadth of the country and then some of the home games you've got 50 to 100 you know drunk students watching them play really <laughs> you know i don't know i think there's a i would have liked to just seen a little bit more of a balanced uh article if i'm being brutally honest but yeah, yeah. i agree it was a bit of a hit piece and i think it it points out that every player who plays a sport should um it insinuates that they they all want to play college sports at the highest level. Like the commitment to play at at the University of Penn at Columbia University, the commitment is very big, and not everyone wants that. And just because the parents are pushing someone to get in, it's easy for coaches to see right through that. And and I think that's where. And I think that's where parents are getting maybe getting angry, like, oh, you know, the school is is um, you know, one one th- one third or one half of their roster are are international players, and and that's why my player, or that's why my son or daughter doesn't does, doesn't have a spot at this school, or doesn't there's not enough spots available. But it's also we I think we touched on this last episode. It's like growing up in a lot of countries, I think you play squash because you love it. Um, you don't take a ridiculous amount of private lessons. You play with your friends, you get better because you watch it because you're keen to get better. And it's like a healthier path to being successful. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Stuart, but like when I'm talking to potential recruits, you can tell which ones like are in love with the sport and and when you're watching them compete in a tournament, you can tell which ones, which parents, if you're, if you're sitting in, you know, in, in eyesight of the parents, you can tell which parents are a little bit toxic. You can sometimes see that come out on the court in the players looking super stressed. That's one of the things I've been trying to look at over the last few years is like, do people actually look like they enjoy competing or do they look just super stressed out? Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this article that, isn't touched on and but but they touch on the toxic stuff which i think coaches see right through that yeah they definitely do i mean one of the things i tend to do when i'm speaking to recruits is speak to them about the pro game and who their favorite players are because instantly if they don't know the top professionals if they don't know who ali farag and Mohamed el shabagi are or norel shabini or Nuran gohar then you know they're not really fans of the sport. I can't think of any others. Imagine trying to recruit a basketball player that didn't know who Steph Curry or LeBron James or someone like that was. You just Steph laugh Curry. at him straight away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he used to be good, actually. Maybe maybe people wouldn't know now after he's had a pretty average couple of seasons. But But for some reason, it's not that uncommon to have some of the top talent in the US that have no idea who the top professional squash players are. And we just sort of accept that. But to me, that instantly tells you how how big a, a love they have for the sport in general rather than just their own little private bubble of like, 
I'm going to play and I don't care about anyone else that plays. It's like Yancho once though. He didn't know who Steve Meads was and Steve <laughs> Meads was like 10 in the world. <laughs> and he just played him. Yeah. Or he was due to play him, something like that. Who is Steve Meads? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, see, Yancho would never have been recruited by me. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, the Egyptian Open, fellas. Uh, what a weekend. Semi-finals. Let's start from there. Some fireworks, to be sure. Well, yeah, one match in particular. Um, Marwan against uh, Tarek Momin. So, a lot to talk about in that match. We, th- we thought the Diego, uh, not Diego, sorry, the Paul Call and Mustafa Asal match was going to be most controversial of the week. And it possibly was, but I didn't think it would even have a challenger. I think Marwan kind of lost it a little bit, a fair bit. He looked irritated before he even walked on the court. And... I was thinking about it, like the, everyone's playing their best squash when they're on the edge and maybe you're just a bit mentally tired. And I was thinking as well, like I wonder, like all that downtime on your own, that's got to play some effect, I'm sure. And cup, to couple of maybe being a little bit tired. And so it maybe just a, takes a John Mazzarella to bring that out of you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there's something there between the two of them. I don't think it's about referees in general. I think there's some sort of issue between John and Marwan. Um, and they've, they've obviously had three tournaments now, back-to-back almost. And John's been at all three of them, and he's refereed a lot of Marwan's matches. And Marwan is someone that likes to sort of push, the, push up to the line. Yeah. Uh, generally, I think he does a good, good job of not crossing the line, but it was almost like John had just had enough of it. Um, some of Marwan's comments to John can be a little bit disrespectful and show a lack of sort of understanding of the fact that John's just trying to do his best to keep keep control of the match. Yeah. Um, and I almost feel like John just decided, actually, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. Um, yeah. He was probably, the, I mean, in my book, he was a much better player on the day. I know Tarek played really well and he did unbelievable to get through it, but like it was like Marwan was playing the referee playing moment and to a degree as well, playing himself. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've all had those sort of matches, um, so we know what they feel like, but... Uh, I felt Some more than bit, others. <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, I felt a little bit sorry for Tarek because I think he was kind of on court thinking, what have I done wrong here? Like, what have I done to upset you? Why are you treating me like this? But I think it was just genuinely Marwan trying to use that to fire himself up. But then he got a reaction from John, which was basically, if you do anything that I'm not happy with, I'm going to penalise you through my decisions. And it came to a head in the fourth game when he gave a conduct stroke against them. Uh, and then I think Marwan at that point realised that, right, and I can't keep pushing the boundaries here because the next step beyond that is conduct game or a conduct match. Um, but actually he went quite flat when he tried to do that. So the game got a lot cleaner in the fourth game. But... Like I said, I think Marwan sometimes needs that little bit of niggle and edge to really fire him up and get the best out of himself. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think these uh, takes would be very popular on uh, Squash Stories on Facebook. Yeah, they were painting the old match as, oh, you know, the most biased referee in the world and I'll never watch PSA again because of this and ah, uh, ba ba. Just a bunch of jokers. <laughs> I think if you looked at that match as an isolated one-off, 
then you could probably make a case that the refereeing was unfair and biased. But I think you have to look over the course of probably the whole three events. But even the day before when he played uh, Mazen Hesham, there was a little bit of nego in that one and uh, he wasn't happy with John. He actually gave an interview after that match because he, he obviously won, but he, he said he was disappointed in himself, but he also that he didn't quite understand what he'd done wrong to upset the refs because it seemed like every 50-50 decision was going against them. Uh, and I think there was clues in there that something wasn't right. And then obviously the next day it got even worse and just sort of lost it. And I think when when it did get cleaner in the fourth game, Tarek suddenly sort of found his game because suddenly the, the stoppages and the interruptions were no longer as big a part of it. And we saw that with Ali back in Manchester where he almost got into Ali's head and I'm not saying that's the reason he won because he's playing some phenomenal squash, obviously. Um, but you could definitely see that it affected Ali's performance. And then the time they played after that in the World Tour Finals, Ali clearly came on court with the, whatever happens, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to talk to him. I'm just going to play my game and deal with whatever is thrown at me. Uh, and it was a much cleaner and less scrappy match. I think I've said this, but I... I'm just a believer that I think if you want to toe the line and you want to, you want to push the boundaries of, of, you know, get, getting refs, getting under refs a little bit, trying to, I think he does tend to have more calls in matches than some of the other players. Right. And I think he, he's trying to push the boundary of winning more calls by, uh, potentially creating a little bit of interference at the right time that he thinks he should be reward, like he thinks he'll come out on top, on top of those situations. But I think like if you're going to play that game and you're going to constantly be the one, um, be the guy that's that's causing the some of these issues, I think it is going to come to a head every once in a while, and I think they are going to try and take a hard stand and. I I can't imagine, you know, I can imagine how frustrating it would be in the moment when you're in a big tournament in the semifinals and this is happening, but I just think it's bound to happen. Um, I think you're bound to get penalized if, if you know, two, if, if Tarek and Ali play and it's a fairly clean match and then, you know, um, so someone, someone, someone else play and it's a fairly clean match and then, and then, uh, you know, not just Marwan, but anyone, Mustafa, Saul, anyone, if, if they seem to be the piece that's always causing these issues and the PSA is very clear about wanting to, to make matches a little bit more free-flowing and, and um, clean, there's, there's got to be something that happens, right? If their mission is to make it more free-flowing squash and there's certain players that are consistently being the ones that aren't allowing that. Yeah, as I as I always say, it's not hard to find the common denominator, and you always get one player who's involved. It doesn't matter who the opponent is; there's more decisions in those matches. And I think I think Marwan plays well when there's a lack of rhythm. I think he's good at disrupting the rhythm and not allowing players to sort of feel settled. And that's one of the things that makes him so tough to play. Uh, and a large part of achieving that is through those sort of lets and. Even if he agrees with the, the decisions, I think he likes that style of play where people are not quite sure what they're going to get from him. Um, and he deals with that stop, stop. 
start nature for say, Chris. You can't play that way and then not expect it to come back to bite you from time to time. Yeah, and I think we're all in agreement. He's playing just like we talked about with Assault. Like they're playing such quality squash that you'd like to think that they really don't need to do it. Um, and the outcome there could have been slightly different if he wasn't. Uh, if he if if maybe he got he was a little more comfortable playing without without some of that stuff and without getting it in into it with uh, mozzarella. But mm. it'll happen. Speaking of Asal, geez, I have to say he was good again against Ali. Sorry, in terms of the quality of the squash, and he, I think we picked up on it that we expected him to have a, a lot more respect for Ali as a more established Egyptian player in in front of the pyramids in Egypt. But blind me, how he came back in the third game was was pretty gutsy. Yeah, he was a little slow to get into the match. Um... I don't know if it was the physical effects of the, the day before against Paul or just um, maybe a lot going on in his mind with all the sort of comments flying around. But once he did get going in the third game, he was, yeah, you can see that he's really going to be a challenge for these guys. Yeah. He did look, he looked a bit emotionally flat initially. I found it tough to kind of get him really G'd up. But uh, yeah, a couple of fist pumps and uh, a few. Uh, gesticulations to the crowd as if to raise <laughs> raise the roof then there was no roof it was outside but uh, you, know, you know what I mean but the idea <laughs> I suppose yeah but just to get some sort of adrenaline surging through his veins and uh, can't believe how quick he is for the size of him I know oh man and part, so, of that, part of that comes from his reading of the game I mean he, even when people fire in nicks or shots with deception he just seems to read it straight away and he's off the mark so fast. Do you know, do you know he, he reminds me of Jonah Lomo when he came on the scene in 95 and a Kiwi uh, winger who used to just get the ball and just just basically just run through everyone who tried to tackle him and put the ball <laughs> over the line for a try. I just thought like so fast. Jonah was like 18 stone but would move like a 100 meter sprinter. And uh, Sal, I mean, he's, in squash terms, he's he's that kind of physique like, He's not built to play rugby, but he probably could if he really wanted to. Just speed up. And watching, like watching Farag move this week, was just you know thing of beauty. He's just like so long and so strong, and he never his you know he can take a, a six to feels like six to eight foot lunge off that T area and then bound right back to it. Where and Asol has that similar like has that similar type stride, but it's just a lot more forceful. And he can also generate a ridiculous amount of pace from it. Whereas I feel like Ali, you know, he'll, he can, he can play a super nice touch drop and he can get, and he can, you know, throw up like those unbelievable lobs from a nice stretch when the ball's like literally glued to the wall. But then you've got a Saul going in with a massive stride and he just canes the ball from that position. It's it's like wild. The assault assault. Yeah. <laughs> and one and two in the world on the women's side getting through. Both good matches in the semis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the semis weren't actually as tight as you might have thought. 
I guess they were both 3-1, so they weren't that one-sided. But I felt like in both matches, um, the winners looked in control throughout. I kind of thought Hamami and uh, Gohar might have been tighter, but Gohar did a really good job, especially in the third game. I think it was one all, and she just came up with some really, really good quality winners, some low kills, um, almost no errors, and... Yeah, Hamami relies a lot on her retrieving and she just didn't get, her, get give her a chance to get the ball back. Yeah, I think that, that third game seemed to knock the wind out of the sails of Hanya a little bit. Um, two and down with a lot of miles on the clock from a previous round against Camille, um, which was an epic battle. It also seemed to give Gohar a little bit of confidence as well. I think she's maybe not had that level of confidence she saw when she was playing her very best and she was winning British Open tournaments like that, that she, when she really starts to believe she she's hard to beat. And I think that third game when she just hit, hit three or four outrageously good locale winners, that sort of lifted her and again, she carried that into the fourth. Gets on the, on the hammer train. Were you guys surprised, were you guys surprised to see, um, See a couple three loves in the finals. I wasn't actually no. I kind of felt the nature of the game that Tarek had had and his pathway to the final, like not just his emotionally draining match with Marwan, but also he was in a lot of discomfort and it took a lot to get through Diego as well. And maybe Ali during the course of the whole week was a lot more clinical, went in there with less miles on the clock, feeling good, probably feeling confident as. You know, we all picked up on how well he was playing all week, not just moving well, but taking the ball in early and dispatching, especially since that first round match with Nicky Muller. Dispatching Gaultier in the way that he did was was uh, no mean feat. You know, we know Gaultier is not at the same level he was pre-operation, but he's still an unbelievable player and a force to be reckoned with, uh, backed up by the fact that he beat Miguel uh, Angel Rodriguez in the round of 16. Yeah. I mean, none of us were really surprised that Ali won because we all picked him in our preview episode. So, I mean, um, yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if anyone out there is doubting that we know what we're talking about, then there's the proof. <laughs> uh, although only one of the three of us picked the women's winner as well. Yeah. Sorry, Stu, we lost you there for a second. Can't hear you. Yeah. Can you hear him, Chris? Is it Arthur? No, no. Uh, it wasn't Arthur, but Arthur did play the... My trick of well, I would have said her, but since you've already picked her, I'll go for someone else. I mean, I'd figured we'd already picked the same winner in the men's. We want a bit of controversy, a bit of banter. Yeah. Anyways, I mean, I wasn't exactly going for a dark horse either in Haniel Mami, who had just come off the back of the World Tour finals. So, I mean, I, I made my bet. I'm happy with it. And uh, Stuart, well done for calling. Yeah, and both of them get into number one in the world as well, which we. Well, I certainly wasn't aware of that before the tournament started. Um, yeah. In some ways, it's fitting that, obviously, two informed players that have just won the first platinum events of the season have um, got to number one in the world. I think in uh, Shubini's case, it's probably fair enough because she's just beaten the player that she's dispatched at the top in the final. Um, but then, obviously, in the men's, it's a different situation with Mohammed missing these last two tournaments and not collecting any of the ranking points associated with them. So yeah. I'm sure even Ali will be out to prove a point um, when Qatar comes around next month when he'll be number one in the world and Shabagi will be two in the world. But 
Um, that's what be... we want. We want that showdown in Qatar and the winner take the world number one spot. That's yeah, what we that's, want. That's what we need. That's what we need. Come on, give us what we want. Give us what we need. <laughs> and, and ironically, I suspect the seedings will be this month's ranking. So Mohammed will be pr- presumably seeded one and Ali will be seeded two. Right on. And who do you think, which side would you want Marwan on? Ali's or Muhammad's? Ooh. I would actually, I would want him on, and let's just say everything was to play out the seating. So this is not to take away from anything. I'm just going with what it says in paper. I would much prefer to see Marwan on Ali's side because then it's a win-win situation for the, for the purist. Because on the one side, and again, just playing the seedings, Muhammad, world number one, current world number one, gets through. And then on the other side, it's either that relishing match with Ali Farag that we all want to see for the number one spot, or you get the second best thing, which is well then to see the two brothers go at it. So it could be... Uh, and then you've got, a, you've got a few other players that are, uh, that are looking for their first title as well. Well, I was just going to say about Marwan that he's not even in the top four, so... He, he could potentially meet any of those. Well, he could beat meet Muhammad or Ali in the quarterfinals, not just the semifinals. Ooh. Oof. Good point. So that would be the semifinal of the bottom or the top half. Yeah, good. Good. Quite stay consistent. Aye. And with the women's, uh, is Shabini, is she kind of well and truly ahead? Or has Hanya or... Camille, any of these other players got a chance of overtaking? I have no idea if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> Thanks for your honesty. On the women's side, I don't know how this works, but um, Camille actually had more points, but also more events than Sherbini before this. So did Tayeb. Um, but it's got to be an average of those points on the on the far side, I imagine. I don't think Hany Hany is super close, but that might not include the last event. So it'll be interesting. Hany up and coming, Asal up and coming. Yeah, Asal actually could be you know first round for. I was just going to say where he falls in the draw and who gets him early is. I mean, you saw him take out Rosner and uh, Wilstrop this time, yeah. just to get through to the quarters. So there'll be a lot of people praying that they don't draw him early. It's quite exciting, isn't it, for the neutral again? Just to, that there's someone there that's more than capable of upsetting the uh, upsetting the odds. Yeah. Have oh, you well. guys been following the squash levels, the kind of like power rankings, basically um, power ratings? One of our most recent guests, Nathan Lake, I think he might have gotten a little. Maybe the squash levels guys are uh, around the court listeners. They he's up to number twenty in the power rank power rating uh ranking so i suspect maybe a little around the court bump for for old nathan lake could be actually yeah so it's jethro bins who set that up yeah another friend of the podcast another friend of the pod friend of the pod yeah all right guys well i'm i'm starved i'm bleeding starved so uh, i think that's good to wrap up there yeah go get yourself some go get some food in that belly my belly Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Stuart. Look out for our Shabagi episode dropping soon. Ooh, it's a good one. Not to be missed. Later.